All right. So a running vest. How many of you have ever seen one of these things before? Okay, I didn't know they existed. When you go on a long run and you don't have a race set up around you to support you with water or gels or electrolytes or anything like that, you need to take something with you. Some people just run with a plain old water bottle. I tend to overdo it, and so I run with something like this. So you can tell in the picture up here, there's these water bottles. They're like little floppy flasks, and you can fill them up with water, and you can have water with you while you run, very important. There's other things that you can carry with you on a race that could be helpful to you. So for example, Well, it's hard to do. Stuff that can go into a bag. Like, I mean, I need to carry a rain jacket, right? Like, what if it rains on me while I'm running? This is a reasonable thing to bring with me. Okay, rain jacket, check. Uh, how about a cap? I mean, let's say it starts getting cold up there in the mountains, right? Like, you want to be able to cover your dome. 80% of the heat in your body is released through your head, so that's important. Let's see, what else did I put in here? Uh, this is a Ziploc bag with toilet paper and ibuprofen. I don't need to explain why I have that. Let's see. This is another Ziploc bag, because who needs one Ziploc bag when you can have two? This has body glide, tape, and uh, band-aids. Again, no need to explain that. If you're a runner, you'll understand why I have that. Gloves. You need gloves. I mean, come on. Like, carry the gloves with you while you're running. Then you can take them off when your hands get too hot. There's some snacks in here. I had, oh, there's a granola bar down in there. It's safe to say that you can come prepared for a race, and then you can do what I did. You can have too much. You can be overburdened by what you're carrying with you. We live in a time when I pastorally have heard more people say to me than I've ever heard in 17 years in ministry, I am overwhelmed. If you said that this week, just don't raise your hand. Just make a little check mark on your, on your paper in front of you. I am overwhelmed. Part of the reason is, in the name of being prepared or being successful or being competent or appearing to be competent, we do things like overburden ourselves. We put too much into our backpack. Or maybe the opposite is true for you. Maybe you're tired of having to push so hard. You're tired of the success that people are having around you. And so you disengage from it and you burden yourself instead with distraction, with endless scrolling, with watching show after show after show because heavens, they just keep cycling. Like Netflix brings up the next one right after that one. There are ways to overfunction and become burdened, and there are ways to underfunction and become unburdened. And the reason I say all of this is we can't live like that. We can't. At the end of this race, I was so shot and so tired, I wanted to take off this vest and chuck it into the woods and never see it again. It was very tempting. We are a burdened people. And so today's message is called Unburdened because the Sabbath is the Christian discipline that the church has practiced for centuries and that we in the West and that we in America have conveniently forgotten. We need to practice Sabbath. What do I mean by that? Well, you can listen to last week's message and you'll know that we talked about Exodus 20 and Genesis chapter 2 and how God has built this into the framework of creation that there needs to be a day of rest. The ratio that God recommends is six to one, six days of labor and then one day of rest or one morning of rest or one hour of rest. One of the things we've talked about is, is in our culture, it is very difficult to even cognate the idea 
of a day of rest. How could I possibly do that? There's so many things to do, so many things vying for my attention. Don't you know that I have an important schedule to keep, Travis? Today, we're going to try to land the plane on one aspect of Sabbath, just one, that I think is critical for us unburdening ourselves, of getting that backpack off, getting the vest off, and just running freely in the race that God has for us. And it's a practice that was illuminated in the text that Julie read for us. It's the practice of solitude. Can you say that with me? Solitude. We're going to talk about what that is, what it isn't, and why it's so applicable to our lives. So here's your outline. What is solitude? Why is it helpful? How do we get to it? And then stop squirming. Stop squirming. We're going to get to what that means. What is solitude? Let's get right into it. This is from dictionary.com, a well-researched academic institution. The state of being or living alone, seclusion. Now, I want to make an important point here. Solitude is not the same thing as living in isolation. It's not. Now, it is one of the ways that we can express this, but think about this. If you are a widower or a widow, you are not choosing solitude. That life has happened to you. This is my mom's reality. This is the reality of a lot of people. Solitude is intentional creation of space and time to be present with God. These definitions here, remoteness from habitations, a lonely, unfrequented place, those are things you trip and fall into. Solitude, in the way that we're using it today, is different. Solitude is a choice. Solitude is, there's a whole bunch of people hanging out over there, and you could go be with them, and you're going to have a great time, but the Lord has put something on you, or you feel this conviction, or you're just, you're tired of pushing, pushing, you're overburdened, and you make a decision not to be around others. Solitude is the intentional creation of space and time to be present with God. It is intentional. This summer, uh, my son Will and I went fishing at Cottage Lake. It was a beautiful morning, and so you can see him there at the end of the little boat dock, and I was down on my end, and he was down on his end, and it was so interesting because we go there. There's not a soul there. We're fishing early in the morning. It's a lovely day, and we could have been kind of right next to each other. Like, I could have moved my chair down there and brought my coffee and sat right next to him, but I could just kind of sense, like, he wanted a little bit of space, as boys tend to want from their fathers. I don't blame him sometimes. And so he went down to his end, and I stayed on my end. And it afforded me this lovely picture, but it also reminded me, like, sometimes our kids need space from us. Most parents think, I need space from my kids. But sometimes our kids need space from us. That's solitude. That's intentionally creating a gap, a distance, and maybe not so much in this case, but in the case that we're talking about today, to give focus, attention, fidelity to Christ. We talked about that quote uh, from Mary Oliver a couple weeks ago, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Solitude allows you to give that attention to God as a means of devoting yourself more fully to him. No one modeled this better for us than the Lord himself. Uh, I found this image online, and I'm sad to say that I couldn't track down the painter or the title of it, but I just want to give us a moment to pause and kind of take it in. It's Jesus by himself. He's seated on some very barren-looking rocks. There's mountains behind him. Is the sun rising? Is the sun setting? Probably rising. He was an early morning guy. Look at his posture. Look at his shoulders. He's carrying 
something. There's a weight, is there not? There's a heaviness to the way he sits. And when we know the story of Jesus, we understand, like, yes, he did carry the weight. He carried the weight of all of creation. Have you sat like this? Have you taken a break from toiling and toiling or working on something or being a parent and just sat? Even if it means you're sitting under some weight. Has God met you in that? This is what I want us to think about when we think about solitude. I want us to think about the Lord himself resting and being with the Father. And it's not always easy. Now, I want to talk about why solitude is helpful. And to do that, we need to frame it under this larger concept of Sabbath. Why are we talking about solitude when the sermon series is about Sabbath? Let me see if I can help us understand this. There are a variety of ways to engage with Sabbath. Maybe you grew up with the understanding that Sabbath really and truly is just Sunday morning. It's like Sunday is your day for Sabbath, and for us, that's how it was in my family. So we went to worship together growing up, and then part of my dad's Sabbath rest was he would go home, lay down on the couch, turn on the golf channel, and fall asleep on my parents' couch. That was his Sabbath routine, very important. If you don't have the golf channel, that's okay. You can find other things to watch that'll make you fall asleep. But rest is part of Sabbath. These are just some Sabbath practices. So to give us an umbrella under which Sabbath expresses itself, you can rest as part of your Sabbath. You should rest. I hope that if today is your Sabbath day, there is space in your day to just sit and do nothing and to be unproductive, beautifully unproductive. Worship is an important part of Sabbath. Well done. You're here. Well done, friends that are online. Prayer. Do you spend time just sitting in prayer a little bit longer, giving yourself a little bit more space, a little bit more grace, that can be part of your Sabbath practice. No work, reflection, and then finally solitude. All of the, my point in saying all this is all of these things fall under this broader umbrella of how to practice Sabbath. And I think solitude is a critical one and a difficult one. And it's restorative of who we are. Now, I wouldn't be saying any of this if there wasn't ample evidence that the Lord himself practiced this. And so I'm going to show you just some very quick examples of when Jesus enters into solitude. In Luke 4, right before the temptation, he spends 40 days by himself in the wilderness. He's practicing solitude. In Mark chapter 6, after he assembles his disciples together, he's about to send them on the mission of the 72 They all go and practice solitude. He sends them out. Somehow they know we need to not be together, but we need to be preparing ourselves for the ministry that God has for us. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus' cousin John is beheaded violently. And so Jesus' response to that is not to go and punch the guy in the mouth and not to, you know, get all angry about it. He creates a space for his grief in solitude. I can relate to this. After my dad died, almost... Every workday, I would go down to either Bothell Landing or one of the kind of little trails that goes by the river, and I would just walk. I had no destination in mind. I had no goal. All I knew is I needed to have some space for my grief to come out, and it could. That's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 14. Maybe that's one of the Sabbath or solitude practices that you really need. Is your grief kind of trying to claw its way out, but you're not giving it the space that it needs? In Luke 22, and in some of the other gospel accounts as well, when Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes between solitude and being with his disciples. He goes off to pray, and then he comes back in and out, in and out, in and out. The whole point I'm trying to make here is this. 
Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. This is Luke 5, 16. This is a pattern. Anytime we look at the life of Jesus and a pattern emerges, one, disciples need to pay attention, and two, it honors God. Jesus' actions always honor God, but we need to pay special attention to the patterns in his life as they honor God. He did this often. In the Mark passage that Julie read for us at the beginning, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has been baptized. He has not yet, uh, or he's gone to be tempted. He's about to kind of go on this public preaching tour where his popularity is going to grow. And so what he's saying to his disciples in practicing this solitude is, I know you guys think it's important for me to be with you. I know I have healings and I have other things that I'm supposed to go do. But this takes priority. You don't know this about me yet but this takes priority. Isn't that the way to establish a healthy rhythm is when you enter into a new season of life or when you take on a new job or when you move or there's some kind of period of transition, you go, actually, I want to establish a practice that's going to be good for me. I want to have this time. I want to have this solitude. I want to practice this form of Sabbath. Jesus did this often and so should his church. So should his church. Sabbath and solitude help Jesus prepare, but I want to be clear about something, and Jesus says this later. This is not like a vending machine. Let me tell you what I mean. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. What's he talking about? Within this crowd of people that he's speaking to is a group of Pharisees, and the Pharisees had a particular belief. This was so fascinating. They thought that if the entire nation of Israel, all the people of the Jews, could practice Sabbath for one day, all at the same time, that God would bring Messiah, that God would restore Israel to its prominence, that there would be this unfolding of the kingdom and everything would be made right. They would win. And so what they did is they guilted people and shamed them into practicing Sabbath as a religious rule, not as a practice of rest, to accomplish their own ends, their own glory. It's never a good motivation for a religious practice, is it? The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Here's why this is so important. When we go and practice Sabbath, when we go and pursue solitude, which I hope all of us will in some form, it is not about saying, okay, God, I put in 50 cents and I want to get a coat. I came to you, and I brought this to you, and I brought myself to you. Now I need you to do this for me. We must hold with an open hand that any Sabbath practice is up to God to express in our lives. The outcome of it, the eventuation of it, is not for you and me to script. It can't be. When I would go on my walks and give space for the grief to just come out, that was the only thing that I was doing. I didn't have a plan for that. I wasn't trying to, you know, do a tape recording of myself and share it with my counselor later and process it. No, I was simply there. This is so difficult for us in the modern world because we believe every square inch of time needs to be purposeful. If I'm not accomplishing something, I'm not doing anything, there must always be a next thing. There must always be a reason for what you're doing. Sabbath presses against that. Solitude presses against that because we cannot script what God wants to do in our Sabbath. And we cannot script what he wants to do when he speaks to us because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you want to be unburdened? Then you have to let go of what you think that should look like. 
If you want to be unburdened, you have to trust the God of the universe to take off your burdens how he wants to, in the order he wants to, with the care that only he can give. Solitude helps us push back on this idea that we must always be productive, we just got to stick with the daily grind, and it gives us the opportunity to say, why am I doing what I'm doing? What is going on in my life? Why, why, why am I here? Like, what is God doing in and around me and through me? And I believe this is at the heart of what Jesus was doing when he would withdraw intentionally from the work of ministry to go and receive from the Father these times of solitude. This is someone that I hope I get to meet someday in glory. This is Dallas Willard. He's a hero of mine. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California for 50 years. I cannot wait to have some conversations with him someday. He died in 2013, and he had a profound impact on my life. And one of the things that Willard wrote so beautifully about was this practice of solitude. So I want to share that with you as we talk about how to make this very, very practical. Dallas Willard writes, We must practice time alone, out of contact with others, in a comfortable setting, outdoors or indoors, doing no work. We must not take our work with us, even in the form of emails, projects, or any of the usual tools of the trade, for then we will not be alone. If you bring your work with you on your solitude, you're not practicing solitude. An afternoon walking by a stream, or on the beach, or in the mountains, or sitting in a comfortable room or yard is a good way to start. This whole quote comes from a broader context, and when you go out to the lobby afterwards, I just invite you to pick up a copy of this. These are just a few paragraphs from Dallas Willard about the importance of solitude. But I want to kind of conclude our time today by telling y'all how this has impacted me. So when I first moved to the Pacific Northwest, I was doing youth ministry at a church, and one of the encouragements that we were given over and over again in this church was to care for ourselves and to take intentional time. And I thank God for that because that's been foundational for me. So when I lived there, and you can even do this here too, I would spend a lot of time borrowing a friend's kayak and just going out on the sound. No agenda, no direction or destination, just this is part of my Sabbath practice. I need to rest, I need to listen, I need to be with the Lord. Now one of the things I do is I try to take a day or a half day, once a quarter, maybe more often than that, and just go to one of the thousands of amazing places we have here in the Pacific Northwest to go and hike and listen. I do take a backpack. It is not overburdened because I have water and my Bible and a journal. Keep it really simple. And I hike, and when I feel like stopping and reading the scripture, I stop. And then I hike, and then I write something down if it comes to me. And if nothing comes to me, that's okay. If you go straight out the front doors of our church and walk down 141st, less than a quarter mile is St. Edward's State Park. And it's a gem of a park. And it would bring so much joy to me (laughs) if there was just a group of people from our church that just made that walk today as an act of solitude at the end of worship. Like, just help us do the trimming of the greens and all that, but then... Go. Go enjoy the park. Who cares where you walk? Who cares what you see? Just go. And let the Lord speak to you. Let him minister to you. We live with an abundance of places like this around us. Have you taken advantage of that? Have you given yourself permission to have that solitude? 
Maybe that's not feasible for you. So let me just give you this example as well from my own life. One of the practices of solitude that I've been able to enjoy is you can practice solitude even when your home has a bunch of people in it, like mine does. So if you get up early, the house is yours. No one else is up yet. So I get up early, I make my coffee, I go into the living room, and we, God bless whoever invented this, we have one of those gas fireplaces that you just beep, and then there's a fire. Oh, it's wonderful. And so I just sit there with my coffee. And I know this sounds a little silly, but I just stare at the fire. I I need kind of an object to focus on to really help me relax, but this is what happens, okay? If my heart and my mind are like this, when I wake up and I'm thinking about things or I'm worried about stuff, from the time that I sit down and turn that fire on, this is what starts to happen. And when I did that just now, there were a bunch of you that leaned forward because that's what you need too. You're tired of this. This is exhausting. And you need this. So maybe you don't have a gas fireplace, but there are ways in your home to practice solitude, to sit and be with the Lord. Let your mind go wherever it wants to go. It is very uncomfortable. One of the lines that I stole from Dallas Willard is, when you're sitting in solitude, you need to sit there long enough. He says it this way, stay with it until you stop jerking and squirming. It's hard. When I first started to practice just staring at the fire, this was back in January of this year, I went to a friend's cabin and just sat there. It was really hard for me to just sit there and do nothing because I'm so used to being productive. So if you experience that, believe me, I get it. But there is a glorious reward if you will hang in there and stop jerking and squirming and just wait. And I don't know what the Lord needs to say to you, but I know that every one of us in the room doesn't need more of this. We need more of this. And solitude is the pathway that I would recommend as you and I seek to be more serious about our practice of Sabbath. Maybe you need to just elbow your spouse right now and say, honey, we're just going to take a walk down to St. Ed's after this. Maybe you need to go home and find your Sabbath spot, your solitude spot. For me, it's by the fire, or during the summer months, I like to sit on my back porch, and I just watch the sunrise through our trees. We have some really beautiful trees at one end of our yard, and so that's my summertime practice. What does that need to be for you? What expression could that take in your life? We don't need more to do. The Sabbath is not another thing to check off the list. What we need is this. We need to follow his example. He withdrew often to the wilderness to pray. Will you? Will we? Let's take time and pray. Jesus, thank you for the incredible example that you gave to us. We don't need more to do. We need you. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to re-engage our voices in singing and uh, come back to this um, beautiful space of worship, we ask that the thoughts that you've given, the the framing that you've presented to us of our need and how burdened we might feel, that you would just hold that 
for us. Maybe we're carrying a burden right now that is just so heavy. We're missing someone that we love who's passed away. Or we're burdened for the pain that we see others suffering. We're burdened by our finances, or we're burdened by our career trajectory, or we've lost our job. We're trying to find a way forward. What does solitude and Sabbath look like when you're unemployed or when you're underemployed? When your marriage is in trouble, when your kids are struggling? Lord, thank you that you gave the Sabbath so that people could be restored and come near to you. And that's what we need. So whatever our circumstances, draw us near to you, Jesus. May we practice solitude. May we practice a form of it that makes sense to us and that honors you. Lord, in these moments of worship now, would you build up in us a hunger for an encounter with you? And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, So Suzanne's going to come back up and lead us in one final hymn, It Is Well. Uh, We picked this hymn intentionally. It is both aspirational and true to the moment. You can say, through Jesus Christ, that it is well with your soul in seasons of plenty and in seasons of want. And you can cry out to God and say, I long for it to be well in my soul. Would you make me well, Jesus? So with that posture, I invite you to stand as we continue in worship.